0: Science podcast. This podcast is a monthly deep dive on topics centered on women and gender in the history and popular culture of science. With you every month are the editors of Lady Science Magazine.
1: I'm Anna Reeser, co-founder and co-editor-in-chief of Lady Science. I'm a writer, editor, and PhD student studying the 20th century American culture and the history of the American space program in the
2: 1960s. I'm Layla McNeil, the other founder and editor in chief of Lady Science. I'm a historian of science and freelance writer with words in various places on the internet. I'm currently a regular writer on women in the history of science at smithsonianmag.com.
0: And I'm Rebecca Ortenberg, Lady Science's managing editor. When I'm not working with the Lady Science team, I can be found writing about museums and public history around the internet and managing research projects at the Science History Institute in Philadelphia.
1: And today we're joined for the whole episode by one of our favorite people, Deanna Day, who you will remember from her appearance on our Star Trek episode. Hi, Deanna. Can you remind the listeners who you are and what you do?
3: Hi. Yeah, thanks. I'm so happy to be here. Um, I'm a historian and writer in Los Angeles. I also work at the Science History Institute, where I'm a research fellow, and most of my work is about the cultural history of science, technology, and medicine, um, and I'm starting to write a lot about pop culture, which I really enjoy. So Thanks for having me.
2: <laughs> so before we dive into the episode, I want to tell you all about our April share is already underway on Twitter. We're happy to have a community of engaged readers and listeners like you, and we need your help to make our community grow. All month, we're asking you to share, retweet, quote tweet, and tag our essays, blog posts, and podcast episodes on Twitter. We're also asking you to engage with both new and old material. We have three years of work for readers to dive into on our blog and issue archive page. As a thank you, we will reward anybody who tweets about Lady Science material at least 15 times during the month with one of our burning raw enamel pins. Again, you can retweet, quote tweet, or write your own tweet as long as you are connecting your circle of friends and colleagues to our material. Later this year, we'll also be holding a pledge to get groups of readers and listeners to become monthly Lady Science patrons. And we'll have more updates for you on the pledge in next month's episode, so stay tuned. You all are the reason that Lady Science has been able to keep going for three years, and through the Sherathon and Pledgeathon, you can be the reason why we keep going. And one last thing I want to say before we get going on the episode is that if you have not yet checked out the female pain memoir series that we've been running on our website blog, LadyScience.com/blog, please do. Since the beginning of March, we have been publishing one memoir a week each of which illustrates a different way that women's pain is dismissed and undervalued by the medical system. So get thee to a reading device if you have not yet checked out the series, and if you want to get in on the share before April is over, tweet about the series and share your thoughts with us. Just don't forget to tag our handle, at LadyXScience, when you do.
1: So today we're going to switch up our usual format. We're doing more of like a mailbag episode. We've been asking Lady Science readers for... Suggestions of bonkers things that men have earnestly believed about women's bodies uh, from antiquity all the way to the present. So, we will put links to all of the sources in the show notes so you can check out some of these things for yourself. And just a preemptive thank you to everyone who sent stuff in. And so In planning out this episode and going through all the submissions, we realized pretty early on that um, most of the strange myths about women's bodies that we'll cover today all sort of stem from one idea uh, from the ancient world, this notion of the wandering womb. Um, So uh, Benjamin Andrew on Twitter sent us this, and they reference a Wired article called uh, fantastically wrong, with the theory of the wandering wombs that drove women to madness, <laughs> which is a pretty good headline. Um, and the the basic idea, which uh, of course comes to us like all good things from the ancient Greeks, <laughs> that was meant to be sarcastic.
2: <laughs> in case, yeah, in case I didn't transfer, <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: uh, is that the the womb the uterus moves about freely inside the body and that causes i'm am sure you can imagine all kinds of horrible per- perturbations <laughs> the greeks thought of it um as an animal within the animal because it had its own motions its own predilections sort of independent of the woman herself and the wandering womb was this, the wandering womb was the source of Many illnesses and conditions that obviously could only befall women. Um, and the womb sort of roaming about, banging around inside of you, running into your spleen, whatever. That causes all kinds of ailments.
2: I kind of picture like a ghost, like a, a ghost inside, just like popping <laughs> <laughs> up to different organs and going, boo. I mean that's way cooler,
3: like a ghost, a oh, ghost womb, wandering <laughs> ghost
1: womb. I like it, just haunting
3: the inside of your body, <laughs> <laughs> or like a little homunculus, just like running around, wreaking havoc. <laughs> <laughs> yep,
1: yep. <laughs> I just imagined it like um like a mandrake from Harry Potter. Like that's what it looks like <laughs> to me. It's just like shrieking and like punching your organs. That's what your uterus does.
2: <laughs> That's what a nine does once a I was, wow.
0: was going to yeah. say,
2: <laughs> <See>?
3: <laughs> you're famous to that joke.
0: A too <laughs> so obviously there were ways to combat this wily wandering womb that screamed and scared all your organs. Uh, one of them involved coaxing the womb back into its proper place by a wafting certain smells at it. And the ancient physician um, Arataeus, I think is how you pronounce his name, um, wrote wrote about the womb in this way and said, quote, the womb delights in fragrant smells and advances towards them. And it has an aversion to fetid smells and flees from them, end quote. So I assume, I mean, I guess the womb is like the rest of us, likes things that smell good and doesn't like things that don't smell good. But the best way to keep the womb in place, uh, you will not be surprised, and this will be a theme that will come up a few times today, uh, is that uh, if you got pregnant um, and remained pregnant as much as possible by having regular sex, uh, then your womb would be okay. I guess if it had a baby in it, it would stay in one place. Well, because it would anchor it down. There you go. It's heavy. (laughs) Yeah, sure.
2: So it can't just wander (laughs) about. (laughs) I mean that makes sense. I mean, right. I mean, if you're I already mean, with decided. within this context, it <laughs> <Yeah>. makes sense.
3: <laughs> oh, this piece of, of the this piece of the story it always reminds me of um, the way that the way that uh, physicians have talked about women's bodies as like factories and how women's bodies are like literally reproductive factories that produce babies and that's like their primary function so this like idea that if a woman is uh growing a child that she is fulfilling her productive capacity and if she isn't things are gonna all go to hell because she's not doing what she's supposed to do um it is like this weird metaphorical justification (laughs) for forcing women to just be pregnant all the time
1: and that the the not pregnant body is uh, pathologized. Like the condition of not being pregnant is actually what makes you ill. It's, uh, and so you should strive to be pregnant as much as possible so that you don't suffer any of the symptoms of not being pregnant. Not that, you know, doesn't account for any of the symptoms of being pregnant, (laughs) which is a whole other thing that, you know, we don't talk about, but.
2: Yeah, and another thing that this, idea does that you know the cure for wandering wombs is sex with the the result of being pregnant and reproduction that those two things for women of having sex and reproduction are linked and that if a woman is having sex to not get pregnant is also pathologized and also deviancy. Um, and those are things that when A little later, we're going to talk about birth control and how those ideas are still present in conversations about birth control um, and what women have the right to do with their bodies and what they don't have the right to do. So this isn't like some sort of sex positive (laughs) prescription (laughs) for the wandering womb. I mean, it's sex positive for like um, the dude. Yeah, the husbands,
3: (laughs) I guess. And I know I was thinking about this. I definitely was told by a teacher in high school that women's bodies weren't made to menstruate every month. Like, th- it was a natural thing for a woman's body to be pregnant a lot. And if you weren't pregnant, and you menstruated more than you were, like, supposed to, then you would get sick. <laughs> and I don't... <laughs> I'm just like...
1: <laughs> I like this idea that you have a... S- a certain, like, set number of uh, menstruating slots that, you like, and once you use them all up, you better get pregnant or you're going to get sick. Like,
2: <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, uh, the wandering womb is basically the foundational myth on which most of the stuff we'll discuss today is built, and it is seen as a fundamental weakness of the female anatomy, and it ensures that most illnesses – that women experience can be attributed to just the construction of their bodies rather than external forces. And as modern psychology has developed, um, we see how the womb becomes the seat of psychological impairment, not just physical impairment. And so we can talk a little bit here about hysteria, because um, the hysteria, you know, comes straight from the idea of a wandering womb. So. Um. Well, the word hysteria is derived from the
1: Greek word for the uterus, which I can't remember exactly the construction of it because I'm a modernist and I don't know anything about Greek.
3: But this sort of like refers to the idea that like, which is also super Greek, like that the male body is the normal body. And the male body is the non-pathological body, and that the female body is the one that is exceptional, and it is that exceptional womb that causes, <laughs> right? Like all the, all the trouble.
1: And I think you guys can correct me if I'm wrong because I just said I'm a modernist. And I don't know anything about the Greeks, but hysteria in like Greek, like in like Hippocratic medicine, and I think even in like later ancient medicine, like Galen and stuff, hysteria is like a physical condition. And it is like your womb is bouncing into your spleen and like causing all of these physical ailments. But I believe it's like it becomes closer to what we associate like the colloquial hysteria, hysterics, just being like crazy, quote unquote crazy. Um, that, That sort of evolves like with psychological thinking right from a physical to like a more psychological.
3: Yeah, and I think it also co-develops with like theories of hormones and the idea that like women have hormonal cycles and men don't, which is not true, but is a really powerful idea that persists. Um and kind of grows up with this idea that oh, well it's these crazy hormones that are making women um hysterical. It becomes like the same the same idea but with a a updated undercarriage of scientific justification. Sure. Instead of humors.
2: Right. And hysteria hysteria became a way to dismiss women's physiological pain and physiological symptoms. So this is something that um, Abby Norman talked about in her book, Ask Me About My Uterus, um, that the pain series that I was talking about earlier is on our blog. Um, her book inspired doing the series, but one of the things that she talks about in her book is the a lot of the historical roots of um, hysteria and how hysteria became a way to dismiss women's actual physiological and physical pain. They obviously couldn't be hurting that bad, so it must be emotions. It must be psychological. It must be mental. And that's how one of the ways that Physical ailments and physio and psychological ailments became linked, and so you
1: can't you can't trust women's own like account of their pain because they're prone to hysteria, which means like exaggerating things. Right? That's kind of okay.
2: Yeah. So I mean, there's a lot of different ways that um, hysteria entered into some sort of a physical diagnosis, or you know. So you're telling me that this hysteria concept
1: is not uh not really all that sort of ontologically stable in that <laughs> it doesn't seem to refer to the same thing twice uh ever and then it covers all aspects of um what could you know what's wrong with women and it's just this catch-all term that doesn't actually mean anything is that what you're saying yeah yeah
2: yeah there's okay. there's just one checking. point where like um Ab- abby talks a lot about how with her personal encounters with doctors that they have been like oh you're not really in pain you're just
0: anxious or and she's like i'm, I'm anxious because i'm sick i'm anxious because i'm in pain by <laughs> the way around uh-huh. <laughs> also matters i feel like that even in like in like modern colloquial use of the word hysteria or hysterical uh Even, yeah, in non-medical contexts, it still is like very female-coded, which I feel like a lot of people are finally catching on to, um, at least like in the feminist writing universe. Plenty of people still don't understand it. Um, But it is interesting how, yeah, the one, while it doesn't seem to mean any one thing in particular, it always has to do with women and women doing things that men don't want them to do. And everything else is optional.
2: Or expressing just like any sort of anger or displeasure or anything that isn't typically a feminine quality, you know, suddenly a woman is in hysterics. Like the, th- the four of us are hysterical right now.
0: Like this is out of control. <laughs> Always.
2: <laughs> it's a really useful
1: um, idea if you are sort of committed to not taking care of women too, right? That like, if you can ascribe anything that's wrong to something like hysteria that's tied to like female anatomy Then you can just say like well this is just how you can expect your life to be because you have these particular parts and there's nothing we as doctors can do about that like that's just how it is so it's a really convenient kind of device that allows you to just not have to like not have to figure out what's you know, what's causing an illness or, you know, do any real diagnostic work because you're like, well, you're a woman. So this is just just how it's going to be because you're full of hysteria.
0: So this idea, uh, as we've all, I think, mentioned is basically comes down to this ancient idea that women's bodies are fundamentally flawed. So men's bodies are the like ideal and women's bodies are like broken or weaker or more prone to illness, male bodies. Uh, could potentially fall apart any moment, who knows. Uh, So jumping forward from um, the Greeks and Romans a little bit, uh, let's just talk about how we've already been talking about how these uh, ideas have persisted. Um, And one of the ways they've persisted in um, going into sort of the early modern period uh, comes from a piece that uh, Helen King sent us Um, that's about a disease that uh, people in the early modern period thought that you could only get if you were a virgin. Uh, So now we're talking about virginity and how that's also problematic, I guess, for ladies. And you guessed it, that disease could be very easily cured if you had sex. Uh, So one of the interesting things about Helen's piece is that it mentions that the disease could recur um, if women had sex but didn't have children. And that was called green sickness. And again, um, you see that the idea here is that if um, a woman doesn't have children, um, if she isn't pregnant, and even if she's having sex, but if it doesn't produce children, there's something wrong with her. (laughs) Uh, Which is
3: the (laughs) what that makes me think of is I have definitely had both doctors and friends say things like oh well my migraines got cured when I had a baby (laughs) or my acne got cured when I had a baby (laughs) and it's like uh is that advice for me for how to cure my migraines and my acne (laughs) because one it doesn't really seem medically sound and also then I'm gonna have to have a baby (laughs) (laughs) but your skin's gonna look great
1: (laughs) (sighs) All the money you were spending on clay masks, you can
2: now spend it on diapers, I guess. (laughs)
1: You're not going to need those.
2: (laughs) Yeah, and there's um, a myth that actual doctors who have gone through medical school that have doctor in front of their names um, (laughs) have pushed the myth that becoming pregnant will um, cure your endometriosis. Jeez, um,
1: um, that's a really bad one. That is it's really dangerous it's really, to be pregnant. It's
2: really dangerous. Um, it could be really dangerous to be pregnant with endometriosis. Um, you could have miscarriages, um, and also sex is really painful for people with endometriosis. So you're not only like you know, kind of pushing this idea of a dangerous now pregnancy, but also like going through really awful pain to have a baby. Like, a, it yeah. <laughs> So
3: I'm definitely as someone with endometriosis have heard that <laughs> and have just been like so I'm here because the problem is I'm in pain. <laughs> what you're saying I should do is a lot of way more painful things. I don't know that <laughs> I don't know that I trust this advice. Um but yeah, no they say it will it will like uh restart or like reboot your reproductive system which is like So bananas, I don't even know how to begin to address the problem. Have you tried
2: turning it off and turning (laughs) it back on? Basically.
3: (laughs) Like the biological equivalent of like unplugging it and plugging it back in. (laughs) Wow. Yeah.
2: I don't know. I actually don't know what to say to that. So we can, I guess. (laughs) I was just
1: going to bring up, um. I don't know if I've ever seen like a depiction of like specifically green sickness in popular culture, but the like um, newly married, like a Royal woman or noble woman who can't get pregnant and suffers all kinds of social strictures um, and whose life is basically uh, completely ruled by this, you know, the need for her to like produce an heir immediately. It just makes me, Think about that, too, that, like, not only is there, like, uh, all of this social pressure um, to have babies in various time periods, but I'm thinking of, like, the early modern period in particular, if you're talking about, like, noble or, like, patrician women, uh, but, like, now also you're just going to be, like, ill, like, until you do, so... And also I'm sure that really makes people feel like having sex too is like being sick all the time. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and it's another one of those things where it's like, no, they're they're anxious because there's all this social pressure to get pregnant. They're not anxious because they're not pregnant. They're anxious because everyone keeps asking them why they're not pregnant. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, and there's like there's like a um, like a chambermaid like looking at your sheets all the time and <laughs> <It's> just like <laughs> It's a lot of stuff going on. (laughs) (laughs)
2: Um, So a lot of the examples that we've looked at so far have been ancient and early modern examples that can be easy to dismiss as just like bonkers old-timey nonsense. Um, It's not just the pre-modern, early modern, ancient period people that were doing this. Um, So let's jump a little bit further into the 19th century, um, and move a little bit closer to our time. Lord Heaven Clark's Sex in Education or A Fair Chance for Girls, which is a treatise
1: on education written by a physician in 1873, uh, which argues that men and women cannot undergo the same kind of schooling because schooling designed for men would literally injure women because they're, um, incredibly complex anatomy. Um, That's the basic, you know, gist of the argument. And this was sent to us by Deborah Levine. Thank you for sending this in. Um, So I'm quoting from, from Clark here. He says that, quote, The fact that women have often equaled and sometimes excelled men in physical labor, intellectual effort, and lofty heroism is sufficient proof that women have muscle, mind, and soul as well as man. Uh, but it is no proof that they have had or should have the same kind of training, nor is it any proof that they are destined for the same career as men. <laughs> I like this quote because it's, um, so in this, in this moment in time, there's, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of unruly women out on the streets uh, fighting for their rights and stuff. So you get the sense that Clark is like, okay, look, I would never... <laughs> I'm an enlightened man. I would never say that men and women aren't equal. What I'm saying is that they have to be separate.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, and I like the... Uh, the in the title... Or a fair chance for girls. So he's like even framing this in such a way as like
3: that this is this is for the ladies. I just I just want the best for them. If this is just nature, this is just science.
1: And he <laughs> talks a lot about this, like it's just science. His whole justification for this is like, I'm a physician, and I can tell you because I know that women have um, I believe he calls it the um the complexity of their organization is the medicine he uses most <laughs> often. <laughs> That, that because they have such complex anatomy, um, they just can't be educated in the same way as men because it will it will hurt their their extra bits.
0: <laughs> that womb might bang into their brain and like dislodge something
2: <laughs> Yeah, it's complex because you never know where that thing's gonna pop yeah, up. Exactly. It's a problem. <laughs> it's like a gopher. <laughs> so
1: because because women have such um Complex anatomy, um, like, sure, they are totally, like, they could go to a boys' school intellectually. They could do that. Women have the ability to do that. But if she did, she would be subjected to numerous health problems, um, like neuralgia, uterine disease, uh, hysteria, our old friend. um, Other derangements of the nervous system, if she follows the same method that um, boys are trained in. And... This is in part because um, when girls are in school is when they're in their sort of adolescent stage. Yes, okay. They're in their sort of adolescent stage when all of their complex anatomy is developing and becoming um, complex. And so if they are uh, schooled as rigorously as boys or whatever, then their ovaries like won't switch on, is basically what he says. So he says, there have been instances, and I have seen such... Uh uh-huh, Sure, you have. Of females in whom the special mechanism we are speaking of remained germinal, undeveloped, it seemed to have been aborted. They graduated from school or college, excellent scholars, but with undeveloped ovaries. Later, they married and were sterile. It's very dramatic. Like this is definitely the worst thing that could possibly happen to a woman.
2: Yeah, and you know, I I also doubt that he has ever quote i have seen such Mm -hmm. circumstances Uh or no i doubt he's ever actually seen a (laughs) woman's body
3: (laughs) well what i love about this quote is like the like the breathlessness of like oh a woman can be educated but then she will sacrifice her fertility as if no woman alive would ever think that that was a trade worth making like whether or not like it's totally bogus that this would ever happen, but the fact that he seems to think that like no woman would ever choose to be educated if it meant she couldn't have children.
0: Yeah, it's like like, he doesn't even need to like lay that out or make an argument for that because that is a foregone conclusion, obviously. Obviously. Uh, (laughs) You just got to make the argument about why education would cause that.
2: This understanding of the uterus as a central vulnerability for the female body Manifest in other ways in the 19th century um, and reflect some of the changes in the world um, of the Victorians that they experienced at the hands of new technology. Uh, Asia Tolman sent us a great piece about how it was believed by some in the 19th century that the high speed of train travel had the potential to dislodge a woman's uterus which was not designed to travel at such high speeds. Like other forms of transport, notable, the much more ubiquitous bicycle These myths about the weakness of women's bodies were a way to curb their mobility and their participation in public life. And in the article that she sent, it's from Mental Floss, um, also, discusses there how there was this uproar about women driving cars as well. Um, it wasn't just the speed issue of a woman's <laughs> uterus traveling at a high speed in a car, as high speed you could have in like the 19th century. Um, but also that women shouldn't be driving because they're prone to bouts of hysteria, that they would go hysterical behind the wheel and cause car accidents. <sighs> so many things. So, I mean, this is basically just like all of these things are revolving around new technologies. And so what these things essentially do is disenfranchise women from participating in, quote, modern life.
3: Yeah, that's a way of of like medicalizing these fears of having women in public spaces, like uh, when people when men wrote about the danger of having women on bicycles like they were also would say things like oh but a woman on a bicycle will be so distracting for male drivers or like women on trains will be like invitations to bad behavior but like all of these like weird fears about having women in public space become medicalized and then put on women and on their bodies and like make them responsible for the like for having to be uh, removed from public life, like oh well, it's your fault because your body just can't handle it, and not like men are ridiculous and don't know
0: how to act. <laughs> yeah, and and like it it matters that all of this this technology, like yeah, say women are, and and wealthier women and more white women are spending time in public space and taking up space in public space more and more often. And there are places for women, women go to department stores and women can get like something like white collar jobs and uh, go on, go out and like all the suffragettes are talking about how they should ride bicycles. And all of these things are terrifying to men. And so, yeah, as you're saying, Deanna, they have to come up with all of these medicalized reasons why, Uh, Women shouldn't be using the technology that helps with them occupying all of these public spaces. Yeah, I mean, you could be
1: a liberated woman, and you could vote, and you could uh, take the train to a different part of the country, but your uterus will literally fall out. (laughs) And so, you know, we can't be held responsible if that happens. So it's probably better if you just stay inside. (laughs) Exactly. You don't want to subject other train goers to that kind of gore, do you?
0: (laughs) (sighs) But yes, these are the Victorians. And as we all know, the Victorians were crazy. Uh, So that means we don't have to worry about like the 20th century, right? We're going to get out of the Victorians. We're going to get out of like the Edwardian period and everyone's going to figure things out, right? No, of course not.
2: (laughs) Of course (laughs) not.
0: We're going to move straight through the 20th century and uh, even a little bit into the 21st century because these things never die. So in the United States, women have always served in the military in various capacities, especially as nurses, but also as different kinds, uh, in different kinds of combat and logistics roles. But as a society, we're still pretty uncomfortable with the idea of women as soldiers. On this topic, uh, Helen Gurley sent us a 2006 article that was called Military Women Can Hack It. It detailed some old ideas about women's bodies that have been used to make public policy decisions about women in the military that have been debunked by recent scientific studies. Uh, So, for example, it talks about the idea that that certain kinds of high-impact exercise are more dangerous for women than for men because it could harm their reproductive system. Uh, again, the womb might get dislodged. Um, so things, it, things like that are what these studies are debunking. Um, and the article notes that science has shown, quote, that human physiology is more consistent than would be suggested by social embellishments and exaggerations, end quote. <laughs> Guys, this article is from 2006. <laughs> it's from the 21st century. Scientists still need to clarify <laughs> these things. And I think that's really what we've been driving at, you know, throughout this episode. Uh, When women's bodies are concerned, we don't really care about what science and medicine thinks, uh, because a good story about women just can't hack it is more interesting. Yeah, I think we just,
1: especially with, so especially in the United States, and especially in the 20th century, uh, Americans have a very complex relationship to their military, and a very fraught relationship to the idea of women being in the military in the 20th century. Still we need to have this. There are so many like social and cultural forces that condition the way we can think about women serving in the military because of what you do in the military and because of it being like I guess such a physical um, or at least it's often perceived as being like a very physical endeavor. I think it's just a site where all of our sort of anxieties about the differences between bodies really sort of float to the surface. And in the United States, the like the ability to serve in the military is connected to, um, to citizenship in a really important way. So when we talk about like whether or not women can hack it in the military, we are sort of also having a conversation about like whether or not women are people... In the same way that, like, men are because they can serve in the military. That's something that I've been thinking about a lot with, like, the... I can't believe I have to say this. I can't believe it's happening. The the transgender, the undead transgender military ban that keeps coming up and getting shot down by the Joint Chiefs and then coming up again. Um, like, that idea of, like, citizenship and who can who can hack it in the military is really important and it's like it's a problem for women but also for um,
2: basically anybody who isn't like straight dudes (laughs) yeah and it it signals like who gets to participate in our military are those who you know get to participate in patriotism (laughs) um, and who gets the honor of being a patriot and who gets the honor of being a hero and those things can easily bleed into nationalism and I think we need to be careful about that but at the same time like you were saying Anna like being able to participate at all confers privileges and it confers certain types of values on people and um, when we limit who gets to step into those roles we limit who we see as a hero who we see as counting. And it's also about like economic opportunity too, like entering the military is a
3: career path for a lot of people who don't have the option to go to college or, or are looking for um, like a path to economic success uh, and to foreclose that possibility because, <laughs> because of weird sexist ideas about what they're capable of and, um, Yeah, that's just terrible.
1: Okay, so one of my favorite examples from the 20th century is the space program, of course. Um, And so because women um, were not really seriously considered as astronaut candidates until the late 1970s, um, there was not that much research about um, women within the discipline of aerospace medicine. So whatever they had found out about um, what men could tolerate uh, in terms of going to space, there was hardly any information about women. So when women did join the astronaut corps, there was a lot of uh, kerfuffle about figuring out what was going to happen if you put a lady body in space because they didn't have any data on this. So uh, Amy Foster has a really great book called Integrating Women into the Astronaut Corps. And she talks about, uh, in particular, one of the things I like that she talks about is um, how for the flight surgeons, menstruation was just like, It was a problem that had to be solved and it was very pressing. Um, you get the impression reading a lot of these like oral histories that she did with women astronauts that it was not pressing for them mostly because they were like grown adult women who had been successfully (laughs) menstruating for, you know, a few decades at this point. (laughs) Like it did not seem like an issue to them, but for the male flight surgeons, it was an issue. Um, So I like this quote, um, astronaut uh, Rhea Seddon is talking to uh, Amy Foster and giving her this history of how all this went down when she became an astronaut. She said, um, quote, Seddon recalled, uh, we got together with all the flight surgeons and they said, okay, no one knows, but menstrual flow may go retrograde (laughs) and come out your tubes and into your abdomen and you may have an acute abdomen in space and what would we do and <laughs> So I'll just let that sink in and like I don't know what tubes
0: <laughs> he's talking
1: about. But because no one had ever had a period in space, like whatever, they're like they're flight surgeons, they're engineers, you know, they're gonna like think this through. Um they were like, we're just going to have to try it. And I guess if you have an acute abdomen in space, that's what happens. <laughs> we'll send you some Motrin. I don't know what the plan was, really. <laughs> so, but they, um, the flight surgeons had the engineers pack 100 tampons or pads, depending on their preference, for women astronauts for, for a two-week mission, like top, like maximum two weeks. I think it's like a week and then like another week if they miss their like re entry window. So
2: a hunt. And that wouldn't that would even be too much if you menstruated the full two weeks. Yeah. Like, <laughs> would- you still wouldn't make it through that whole round. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so um, this is a um,
1: quote from um, another article in Popular Science about the like history of menstruating in space. The engineers asked Sally Ride. Um, uh, they said, quote, is 100 the right number, they asked her. No, she said, that would not be the right number.
0: <laughs> and I
2: hope she said it just, like, super dead oh, Yeah. Yeah, like, yeah.
0: nope. <laughs> that is incorrect. <laughs> and didn't offer any additional information. Just, like, made them at the yeah, very least, no. like, ask.
1: <laughs> 100 tampons. Oh man. Have you ever met a human woman?
2: <laughs> no again i don't think so I do.
1: well that was a thing in the book um amy foster describes how the women astronauts were like a bamboozled by these engineers who had to get out like who had to use like a model of like the female body to design like a urine capture device like they didn't they had they had no idea what was, you know, down there. And the women astronauts are like, are you guys, you're all married, like (laughs) two
3: women, what are you doing? (laughs) You probably have kids who are in need of their own urine capture devices, correct? (laughs)
2: Uh, So another uh, more contemporary example, um, and this comes from our current century was suggested by Lady Science editor Sam Muka, and this comes from the world of sports. Until 2014, women were barred from Olympic ski jumping, in part because of the persistent myth of the, quote, following uterus. The International Ski Confederation president, Gianfranco Casper, said in 2005 that ski jumping was inappropriate for women, quote, don't forget, it's like jumping down from, eh, let's say, about two meters on the ground about a thousand times a year, which seems to not be appropriate for ladies from a medical point of view. end quote. Then he doubled down on this again in 2010 when he told ESPN that the uterus could burst upon landing a jump. So women were finally allowed to form their own ski jumping Olympic teams after 15 prominent women jumpers filed a lawsuit against the games. And that was only, I believe, in this last games. So, I mean, that was like, you know, the last couple of years. Can
3: I just say how much I love the expression, from a medical point of view.
2: <laughs> As if it's like a trump
3: <laughs> card. Like, well, just from a medical point of view. This is obviously impossible. <laughs> like, you, nobody can argue with that. <laughs>
0: It's it's up there with it's just science, <laughs> right? <laughs> and this guy's
2: like even further removed from because at least Clark like was a doctor, right? Right. And yes, this guy's the president
1: of the International Tea <laughs> Confederation. <laughs> yeah. AKA not a doctor.
0: <laughs> yes. Yeah. So like yeah.
1: even. F- well, and I like apparently the idea of like the womb wandering or the womb being dislodged or is, like, not graphic enough to, for this dude to make his <laughs> point. So not only is it going to, like, fall, I'm assuming, out, or it's going to explode upon landing a ski jump, which is very graphic. And I'm not sure what he thinks the uterus is made of. I'm imagining, like, I guess a pink water balloon. Maybe that's what he's sort of got in mind here
0: i feel like throughout history people men are basically imagining the uterus as a balloon it's floating around it's like (laughs) moving it's like kind of maybe gelatinous in the way that like a water balloon is where it's kind of weird and squishy and it bangs into things but it's got and sometimes it's got like a spooky ghost faced sharpie on it so (laughs) Yeah. yeah
2: yeah yeah yeah. well and you can like tug it back down when it's time to get pregnant with the string
3: (laughs) by wafting pleasant smells
0: (laughs) like they're all imagining basically the same thing which is wild and incorrect and strange almost like it's a systemic problem Uh
1: well wait a second Uh, i don't
0: know
1: (laughs) I think we're going to need more evidence. <laughs> we need some science in here. Uh, when you brought, when you mentioned wafting again, I feel like we didn't really cover wafting of the smells to the uterus quite as much as I wanted to. But it also reminded me of that whole sort of recent controversy about um, Goop and the like, <laughs> vagina mist oh, that yes. she was selling. Uh huh. <laughs> So, you know, when we say these things never die, we're serious. Like, Gwyneth Paltrow wants you to waft, like, essential oils into your vagina to promote your reproductive health. So, I'm not saying.
0: I'm just saying. (laughs) Okay, guys. So, it's really easy for us to, like, sit here and laugh about all of this and... Of course, part of the reason we're doing that is because sometimes it's better to just like laugh and mock things than to cry about the patriarchy, which I think we have all spent many hours of our life doing Uh, (laughs) in different ways. Um, But setting aside goofiness, uh, we, of course, know that all of these assumptions about women's bodies uh, have a profound effect on both our healthcare system, as we've discussed, and on our politics. Uh, obviously, if you just look at any debate about abortion, you're going to find tons of people who are spatting off some pretty terrible myths about women's bodies and how they work. One myth that you hear a lot is that getting an abortion is bad for your mental health. So we hear a lot of stories, of course, in pop culture and also in the news about women who regret abortions or at the very least have a, a traumatic experience. So I feel like like the general assumption of the world is an abortion is a traumatic experience. And even on a certain level, a lot of pro-choice people kind of, I think, assume that it's going to be this like really bad negative emotional experience, even if it's okay to do that. Uh, Studies have shown though that there is no evidence of mental health harms from abortion. Uh, One recent study from 2016 looked at a a thousand women under the age of 18 who got pregnant and it showed no significant psychiatric difference between the women who got abortions and those who didn't, uh, when they checked in seven years later. And that study is discussed in further detail on a podcast called science versus they did an entire episode about various abortion myths. So that's not the only myth out there about like why abortion, um, could be bad for you. In many states in the US, doctors are required to tell women that getting abortions might increase the risk of breast cancer or might lead to infertility. Uh, there's no scientific evidence to support either of those things or most of the other things doctors are required by politicians to say um, before women get abortions. But I do think that the mental health myth is especially pervasive just kind of culturally because it is related to these historical myths that we've been talking about today. Um, So many of these, one way or another, saying that that women might go crazy uh, if they make the wrong reproductive choices. And this idea of linking poor mental health and abortions is really doing the same thing.
2: Right. And it's not like the same people who make those claims and try to scare women into having a child is that these aren't the people that are also like advocating for better mental health care. Oh, yeah, no, of or, <laughs> you know, anything like that. So there's, they don't actually care about your mental health. These are those forced birth advocates that will use any tactic to make women carry a child's term. Um, there was, um, this last episode of, Last week, tonight, with John Oliver, he did a full segment on crisis pregnancy centers, and he looked at their, like, playbook that people will tell um, pregnant women who come in looking for abortion. Um, And one of those things, like, all of the things that you said, Rebecca, but also, this one is bonkers and terrifying. That if you get an abortion later in life, you will find, like fingers and other appendages like in the heart, in your heart and in your lungs. And yeah, so uh, relying on that myth that pro-lifers and forced birth people push is that abortion is gruesome and the way that they do it is just by mutilating babies inside of you and then ripping them out. Um, And these, when you make room for one myth, you make room for all the myths, like, especially with, like, these types of people that will pretty much say anything to force women to give birth.
3: And when you have, like, a systemic attack on education, so that, like, women and girls, like, they don't know how their bodies work, and it just, like, leaves this vacuum for terrible actors to to fill with this kind of heinous disinformation. Oh,
2: God, that's awful. The woman that I studied for my uh, master's thesis, she was a German physician, and she left Germany to study medicine, got her degree, came back, um, and dedicated her career to writing popular medical texts for women and children, and one of her things was she's rating these specifically for women so that they don't have to go see male physicians, that male physicians brutalized women. They didn't care about them. They uh, preyed on specifically poor homeless women. And so her whole thing was teaching, like actually laying out female anatomy so that they knew if they did go see a male physician, that if they were being taken, or if they were being taken advantage of or lied to, and that they could subsequently take care of themselves if they had to. And like, When you have, like you were saying Deanna, systemic attacks on education and this misinformation coming at you from all of these different sites, it's like, well,
0: those 19th century women were onto something. And like, it matters that even, you know, the the doctors that would never say things like crisis pregnancy center people do and probably are pro-choice and like think that they're the good guys still will have a little bit of like, lol, ladies' bodies are complicated and weird, adds to all of this. And and the fact that uh, there are, yeah, there's, there's this just like this general idea that we don't know a lot about women's bodies because they're more complicated, too bad about that. We'll just like, guess how things work that then leads to opportunity for people to fill the gaps in really terrible ways. Yeah. And there's, I mean, there's also
1: like maybe this idea that, that women's bodies are fundamentally unknowable in a way that, that like props the door open for that kind of thing permanently, you know? And it's, it's a thing that, I mean, it's not just like what your doctor says to you in the real world. I mean, it's, it's all over popular culture. It's sort of like baked into our everyday experience of the world that like, um, if you have a, like, if you have a uterus, your body is like fundamentally unknowable and unstable and like profoundly flawed in a way that you can never escape. (laughs) I just, when I was just thinking about, um, I'm trying, man, I'm trying to lighten it up a little bit, (laughs) but, I was thinking about, um, I don't know if you guys are, I know Layla is, but I don't know if you guys are West Wing fans. But uh, Oh, yes. When, <laughs> yeah, when, um, uh, like, anything that has to do with, uh, with uh, Andy getting pregnant or having babies, like, Toby just can't, he can't understand it. He can't handle it. He's just like, I think he said something to the effect of, like, like I don't know how you live with these bodies. Yeah, I think that is the line. <laughs> she, yeah. Yeah, and she's like I don't know you guys never seem to mind and he like can't deal with like the um like the gel goo they put on her on her belly to do an ultrasound. He's just like super weirded out by all of it. Like it's this like profound mystery that like there's no way he could ever understand. And like it's harmless in that context because you know, it's Toby and that's his, part of his character, but I think in a larger context, like this is just something that we assume to be true about women's bodies that, like, they're just man. This there's a lot going on there. Who knows?
2: That's a lot. And that's by design as well, because modern medicine has made it so that we keep thinking women's bodies are unknowable. Yeah. Like it wasn't until 1993 that women were federally mandated to be included in in uh, clinical trials. So you know, and along with uh, people of color as well because <laughs> they also were being left out of clinical trials and so th- that women's bodies continue to seem mysterious, the medical establishment has made that possible still. Yeah and
0: that's and that's why it you know it matters that we sit here and mockingly, roll out all of the like stupid things that the Greeks thought or the early modern people thought or the Victorians thought because we haven't escaped this shit and knowing that it can, the ways in which it's kind of shifted form over like millennia and continue to have like such a hold over our society is just vitally important if we're if we're ever going to get over it.
2: Uh, Well, I guess we can put a pin in this conversation today. Um, Deanna, thanks for hosting with us today. We hope that you'll do it again because this was fun. Thank you. And listeners, if you liked our episode today, leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts so that new listeners can find us. If you have questions about any of the segments today, tweet us at @LadyXScience or hashtag LadysciPod. For show notes, episode transcripts to sign up for our monthly newsletter, read monthly issues, pitch us an idea and more, visit ladiescience.com. And we are an independent magazine, so we depend on the support from our readers and listeners. You can support us through a monthly donation with Patreon or through one-time donations. Just visit ladiescience.com donate. And until next time, you can find us on Facebook at, at LadyScienceMag and on Twitter at, at LadyXScience. And don't forget that our Twitter charathon runs through the end of April.